Welcome to the Barely Protestant Podcast. I am your host, Brother James. And I'm uh, Timothy. And today we are going to be continuing our talk on ordination and holy orders. So, Timothy, how's your day or your week been? How's your week been? Oh, it's been it's been okay. I uh, I'm starting to try to get into gear for the semester beginning. It starts the last week of August, so I've been I have some some stuff that I was supposed to do over the summer that I kind of procrastinated on. So I'm trying to get in gear in that and just get back into a semester mindset so that it doesn't take me by surprise when it actually starts. Mm. Uh, and what, um, uh, what di- when does uh, school start up again for you? Uh, it's the last week of August, so the week of the 25th. Okay. okay. Yeah, so one more yeah, week. We start, yeah, we start the 26th. Um, I actually thought we were going to start like in September, but uh, it kind of caught up with, with me. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> Um, I wanted to do a lot more prepping for Hebrew and Greek than I did. Oh, well. So we'll see how it works out. Are you already in advanced Hebrew and Greek? So I have to do Greek exegesis. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I kind of put myself in a corner because I'm doing Hebrew uh, Hebrew 1 and 2 for my last year. Oh. But I also uh, have to do uh, Greek exegesis. Oh, that's a so lot at Hebrew one time. Hebrew 1 and Greek exegesis. Yeah. It's going to be fun. But oh, well. So, um... Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about uh, holy orders and uh, sort of the differences and agreements uh, that we have concerning it. This is actually one of the things that the Tractarians differed from a lot of the uh, sort of mainstream uh, Anglicanism on during the 1800s. So, as was explained before, in holy orders we understand it as an ontological difference between uh, there's there's an ontological change that happens when a bishop when a, a person is made to a bishop priest or deacon, and uh, the reason we think of that is that it is a sacrament and sacraments will always give a change to the person. Um, and we looked at a few passages uh, concerning holy orders. Um, so Timothy, what what's your view on holy orders? Um. I haven't I haven't done enough study on the the kind of ontological versus I think functional is the is the other view um, to really kind of have a strong opinion one way or the other. I think if you just look at the New Testament, it's pretty clear that the laying on of hands confers at the very least a, a charism um, for the fulfilling of the of the particular office that the laying on of hands is for. Um, so I'm. I guess it depends on how you would cash that out with regards to a a ontological versus functional. Um, but I probably lean towards a view that it doesn't create an ontological change in the person in holy orders in the sense that they are, like, in the sense that baptism, uh, like, gives an indelible character to a baptized person versus an unbaptized person. I don't, I don't think the difference between a lay person and a person in holy orders is that fundamental um but that's just my kind of initial thoughts on the matter so to understand uh there's a few different sort of practical ways that this works out would you ever consider it legitimate to sort of reordain someone who is a priest 
let's say they left the faith, you know, they, let's say they're an Anglican and they left the faith, and then about ten years later they come back and they've you know shown true repentance and you know you give them a period of time where where you see the fruit of their of their return and their repentance and you judge that they should go back into ministry again. Would you see the laying on of hands um, again as a sort of good thing to do? Like, like, how would you work that out? I think probably in that case, it would be a good idea to do the laying on of hands again, but um, like conditionally. So, like the way that a conditional okay. baptism is done. So that that I think mainly for me that would be a, like a practical matter, just to ensure that you know if I think mainly for conscience' sake, really, because if somebody who was under the ministry of that of that priest was worried that you know the first time around when they had the laying on of hands if the person was already in a spiritual state that made them incapable of actually receiving ordination properly um i think that a, a conditional reordination would could remedy that okay I, and as someone who holds to an ontological understanding i have no problems with conditional you know, ordinations and, and or conditional baptisms for that matter. Yeah. Um, so then, how would you look at sort of um, apostolic succession then? What would, do you hold to an understanding of apostolic succession? And if so, is it just a teaching thing or is it an ontological passing down? How, how do you see that? Um, I do, I, I would say I hold to a form of um, apostolic success, succession. I don't know if it's, um, I don't know if I think of it as being as tactile as a lot of iterations of it are, uh, simply because I, I don't, uh, kind of common to a lot of the old high churchmen, I don't want to unchurch the continental Protestants. And mm -hmm. if certain forms of apostolic succession that are, um, you know, very much focus on the tactile from one bishop to the next bishop, would mean that they the continental reformed churches aren't true churches. Yeah, I tend to I tend to shy away from that because I'm 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 convinced that there are true churches in the continental reformed tradition and so if there's a, a a form if a form of apostolic succession means that I have to conclude that the continental reformed churches aren't true churches, I that, I find that problematic. Okay. So would you not ordain, say, a Presbyterian who decides to become Anglican, um, wants to be a priest with an Anglicanism, but was a presbyter in Presbyterianism? I think I would, um, but mainly, again, for kind of practical concerns, especially given that within, a, within, you know, within the Anglican tent, there's people who think more like me, and then there's more Anglo-Catholic views on it. And so for the sake of conscience, I would think, again, a conditional uh, ordination would be probably be the best avenue for that, just in case. Um, but I would, I think that, I think that Presbyterians and other, you know, other, like, Reformed traditions, their, their ministers are actually in holy orders, um, in the sense of their, their, I think they have true presbyters and true deacons. Mm -hmm. So my thoughts on that are, I um, I don't want to unchurch Continental Reformed, or honestly, I don't want to unchurch anyone. Um, but I do think that I, I tend to sort of take a, 
a, a, a nicer Eastern Orthodox view of this, hmm. where sort of like we know where the church is, we don't know where it's not. Oh, interesting. So for me, it's not so much of a, it's not necessarily like a salvation issue. Like if you're a Presbyterian, I would say you probably don't have holy orders, or, or at least you don't have holy orders as traditionally understood, I would say. But that wouldn't mean that somehow that you've just, like, that there's no grace being imparted. Because I don't think God is that sort of stickler of sort of... I, I don't see him condemning people for that. So for me, it's not a salvation issue, it's a fullness of the faith issue. Okay. You know, God constrains us by the sacraments, but is not himself constrained by the sacraments. So that's why you get even things like the idea of baptism of desire, you know, the traditional, well, what about the thief on the cross idea? You know, those sorts of things. God is not like, oh, well, you know, too bad. You're supposed to get baptized and you didn't, even though you were wanting to or whatever. Um, so likewise, I see with the Presbyterian um, or Baptist or whatever idea is that I wouldn't necessarily say that their Eucharist is valid, but what I would say is that they are they are still receiving Christ in that church tradition. Okay. How I I don't know. So if you, you if know, you were it's just different. Okay. Yeah. If you were in a a Presbyterian church on a Sunday morning, would you would you commune? Now that's an interesting question. I've gone back and forth on that quite a few times. So I used to in my early days of Anglicanism. I would commune at uh, at this really sort of very hipster non-denominational church, and it was so low church and so bad that like literally, they, so it's weird because they have commu- quote communion every Sunday. Is it where it's just at the back of the room so, or something for whenever you want to take it? it? It's exactly. Oh, yeah. like, oh, you just kind of go there and you do. and I and so I would. I felt so torn, but I'm like, you know, I love these people, they're great, so, you know, whenever I'm here, and it was a Saturday, it was, that's right, it was a Saturday night thing, um, so I'd go Saturday night, and I'd go to my Anglican church Sunday morning, um, so what I would do is I would sort of pray uh, the prayer of Hubble access before receiving communion, but, like, the pastor didn't even do the words of institution or anything, he was just like, if you guys want communion, go ahead and get it, Wow. and I was just like, it, it, so, um, that's the extreme of me on that. Um, and then the other side of me, um, today, I don't know. I, I, I think that I, I haven't been to a non-Catholic church since, oh, probably, like for a Sunday morning for like probably two or three years, I want to say. Not at least for a Sunday morning. Hmm. So I, I don't know what I, I, I honestly don't know. I think it might depend on the church and the pastor himself, you know? Yeah. I do. Yeah. I, I am kind of. I'll commune in like in a Presbyterian church or um, mm-hmm. a Lutheran church if they allow me, which is that's you know, that's kind of a sticky subject. But um, I I definitely have gotten to the point where if it's something like that, where it's just they don't even there's no sort of Thanksgiving or even words of institution. It's just at the back of the room. I actually won't commune in that kind of instance because I I actually am pre- I'm pretty sure that's not an actual Eucharist. Um, because there's no, there's no Thanksgiving at all going on other than like the private Thanksgiving of each individual person as they receive the elements. But that's not, that's not a Eucharist in my understanding. So I would not commune actually in those con in that context. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, looking back, it was just me trying to be sort of 
as ecumenical as possible. No, I Being no, that, I understand. I'm not, I'm not. I don't think it's a fault. I don't think I wouldn't fault you for commuting in that context. I, I'm just saying that for me, even for me personally, even though I don't have as robust a view of apostolic succession, uh, there's certain instances where I w- I won't commune for conscience' sake because I don't think an actual Eucharist has taken place. With that, two things. So the first one is actually. With the Lutherans, I'd be much more comfortable because, at the very least, I know for sure they have a view of real presence. Now, I would disagree with them on some important parts of that understanding of real presence, but like at least I know that they believe it's the actual body and blood of Christ. You know? Yeah. So I would have much less of a problem in that. And with the Reformed, like Continental Reformed, it, it does really depend on because i i hear all like all ranges within you know people like to make fun of anglicanism for having a wide range of beliefs on things presbyterians have a wide range of beliefs on or oh, oh sure i mean you get you basically get you get presbyterians that are basically memorialists um which is problematic because the reformed tradition is never i mean not i shouldn't say never but it's definitely apart from Zingwe, it, yeah, yeah yeah it's definitely a very minority position but um yeah, the Lutherans are are interesting because they, you know, they obviously they have a high view of the Eucharist. But the the th- the thing that gives me pause a little bit when I've worshipped in Lutheran churches is the lack of a Eucharistic prayer. Because I'm sure I'm sure you mm. you know this. Like it's just it's literally just the Sanctus and then the words of institution and then distribution, and that's actually given me pause in a couple of instances because I'm like, okay, this isn't really a eucharist explicitly because there's no actual eucharistic prayer um and so that's actually giving me pause a little bit because i i wonder actually if an actual eucharist has taken place just because of that that feature of it because you know the their tradition eschews like any idea of sacrifice to such an extent that they won't have a eucharistic prayer in its full kind of catholic form what i would consider its catholic form with my seminary one week every semester we have uh, Lutheran week because we have a lot of Lutherans at our seminary and the uh, so they'll do mass for the Wednesday because we always have mass on Wednesday um, well they don't call it mass they call it Eucharist or communion but anyway however there's only one ordained professor who's a Lutheran at our school and the uh, professor is a woman so I tend to, I, I, I actually never have received during the Lutheran one, but not necessar- not because of the Lutheran thing itself, but because of the fact that it's a woman, yeah. which we'll get into that in a second. Um, so actually, I, 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 this is the bad part for me. I tend to not pay as much attention as I should during that part. So actually, I've never noticed that there was there's no Eucharistic prayer. It might be with them, or it might not. This is um, NALC, it's called. Oh, okay. The type of Lutheran. Yeah, I'm I'm so, familiar ma- mainly with the the LCMS, the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod tradition. So it's possible that huh. other Lutherans do have a Eucharistic prayer in their in their liturgy, but the ones I've experienced have not actually. Well, that brings then us to um, the whole women's ordination thing. So, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I I already gave my thoughts. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll elaborate, but I already gave a hint of. Yeah, mind. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm against it. I I don't think. I don't think women can be priests. Um, it's not even an ought. It's I don't think they can actually be priests. And there's, I mean, there's a whole host of 
I, th I consider deep philosophical and theological reasons I hold that view, and a lot of it has to do with um, my anthropology, the, the, my view of like the purpose that God created man and woman and how, what they image um, is kind of goes into that. And that, that could be a whole nother, uh, for me at least on my end, that could be a whole nother podcast episode because I, I have, <laughs> I have some interesting stuff that I, I think, I actually think I come at the issue uh, from a different direction than a lot of, um, a lot of the traditionalists do. Um, but that, it, that getting into that would be kind of a, a whole side discussion. So I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily broach that right now, but. So, um, with me, I think the problem is I, I have a bit of a complicated sort of position concerning women's ordination. I'm, I am against it, but I'm not, it's hard to be in a seminary that is very pro women's ordination and, um, being against women's ordination oh, yeah. <laughs> because the, yeah, that there's, that gets a lot of talks going on. Um, so I tend to try to just sort of basically keep quiet at my seminary. But I've actually had a few uh, conversations with people. I just had a conversation with one of the new students a few weeks ago about this. Because, you know, we were at a, a, a sort of party and we just met, so just talking with people and stuff, and she asked me my view on uh, women's ordination. And so I had, was like, oh, wow, that's that's a great conversation opener. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I gave so my view is this basically that if the entire church had decided that um, women could be priests, that would be one thing. However, the way through the way it happened with the Episcopal Church is that three bishops just sort of out of nowhere in the seventies decided, you know what, we're going to ordain women to the priesthood, and you know quote, we, you know, the quote, the Holy Spirit sort of guided us kind of mentality. Hmm. And so they then just did it without any sort of, you know, provincial talk, let alone, you know, communion talk with the entire Anglican communion. And that has been one of the major sort of tacks on the road of sort of liberalism that the Episcopal Church and then a lot of the Anglican communion uh, following uh, has gone down because of that. Hmm. There, just this idea of like, well, we have a feeling that we need to do this, so we're going yeah. to do it. And they've repeated thing. that. They've repeated that process, obviously, with gay mm -hmm. marriages, and it's just, yep. you know, it's technically still against the canons, but some bishop just decides, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Exactly. So, like for instance, in uh, Lambeth, 1998, uh, the entire communion uh, condemned gay marriage, like. Not gay married people, or you know, not people, but the actual concept of marriage uh, being between two men or two women. Um, they condemned that uh, mentality. Yet we have the Episcopal Church now doing it, and um, I think, yeah, the uh, Anglican Church in Canada, etc. You know, but you know, it, so we've seen this sort of idea of just like quote the Holy Spirit tells us kind of idea, which means the Holy Holy Spirit meaning you know my own personal feel yeah. feelings. So the reason I'm quote, strongly against women's ordination, one of the reasons is because it's been such a sort of tear in the fabric of the church. We had great ecumenical relationships with Roman Catholics and with the Eastern Orthodox. Like, the Eastern Orthodox were telling their people to come to Anglican churches if there's not an Orthodox church nearby. Wow. <laughs> and then we did this, and then, you know, they broke relationships with us. Now we're slowly building back up, especially with the ACNA, 
and Russia, there there is a bit more of a communication between the two because of yeah, that. I've noticed that, or because of, you know, but, uh, with recent developments and all. But that, I mean, there's so much ground that has to be recovered from that. Now, as far as the theological th- thing itself, my whole thing is, you know, we have received this tradition of the church, and the church has always understood bishops and priests, at least, to be male only. And that's sort of the universal understanding of the church throughout the 2,000-year history. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've heard the argument, I mean, I, you know, almost all of the professors here pro-women's ordination at my, my seminary, and I've heard the arguments that they've made, and I just, I, I, I don't want to be against women's ordination. I honestly don't. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> so, no, but um, I just, in, in a real sense, I, I don't like the idea of sort of saying, well, I'm sorry, women, you can't be a priest or a bishop. But I, I, I made a vow to be with Scripture, to, you know, not go against Scripture, not to, not to go against the faith. And I've just not found the arguments convincing. You know, the idea of Junius slash Junia, uh, whether she was an apostle or whether she was well-known among the oh, apostles, yeah. you know, that whole argument. I'm like, that's a very thin sort of she device that you're trying yeah. to put an entire theology especially on. given Especially given that the, the, the term apostle has a strict use and a, and a more general use in the New oh, Testament. Yeah. It doesn't mean just one of the 12 with apostolic authority. It can mean simply like somebody who's sent as a, well, exactly. an emissary of yeah. some sort. Yeah. Well, if, you know, for instance, Mary Magdalene, she's called in the early church the apostle to the apostles. Yeah. By people who were against women's ordination, yeah. <laughs> including St. John Chrysostom. But he didn't think by saying that that he meant that she was a, an apostle, like a bishop or something. Yeah. You know? Uh, so it's it's a that that whole thing. So, and, and on top of that, like I said, the 2,000-year history... Now, when it comes to deacons, you do find female deacons or deaconesses in uh, the early church, and then... So, that has never been a problem for me. Whether it's deaconesses or female deacons, whether it's ordained or, or you know, however you want to work that out, there are female deacons in the early church, and I think that's appropriate for today. Mm. Um, but yeah, so you said something earlier that you said... Th- 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 it caught my ear... And I want to get to it. When we started going on the women's ordination thing, you said that you don't think that they can be, not merely that they ought to be. But if I could push on that, doesn't that imply that you do see an ontological understanding or an ontological difference there? Yeah, that you, that's that's an interesting point you make. I could be inconsistent in that regard. Um, I get, yeah, I haven't really I haven't really evaluated it from that angle, but there could be something there. Um, I mean, it could be, I guess if I, if I was still going with a functional understanding, I guess I could argue that, that there's a sense in which like a, a woman couldn't function as a priest. And I, and, and that would be because this is kind of going into the meat of why I can't, I think women can't be priests is, um, the, the kind of iconic nature of men and women as created men and women, I think that that so before before I go into that I I should say that one of the, one of the ways I came to this question was is there's you know in 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 St Paul there's that curious line that I never understood in the middle of his argument about um I'm trying I'm forgetting now where the uh where the passage is I can let me look it up but it's where Paul says for man is the glory of God but woman is the glory of man and that passage had always puzzled me 
I never understood it. It seemed like it seemed like a non sequitur in the argument, and it didn't make sense to me. And then I read actually an article by James Jordan um, that I actually find I think it's an excellent article. It's called Liturgical Man, Liturgical Women, um, and the, the one of the one of the effects of reading that article made me realize that that is exactly that that line in St. Paul is exactly where it should be and it makes perfect sense for the argument. So what Paul is arguing is is that women eschatologically represent all of humanity. So when he says they're the glory when women are the glory of man, he means that women picture in the assembly what all of humanity will be at the consummation of the kingdom. And mm. men represent Christ at the consummation of the kingdom. And so the reason that you can't have a, a woman lead the liturgical assembly is because she's an icon of the church, not of Christ. Um, mm. And so that actually really transformed my understanding of what was going on because everything that happens in the church is iconic. And so I, I don't think women can be priests because women cannot icon Christ in that sense, obviously they can they can picture Christ in the liturgical, in the sense, liturgical yeah. sense. They cannot icon Christ. Men icon Christ, and he, not even all men. Really, if you're talking about a liturgical assembly, it's the priest that is the icon of Christ primarily, and and the, the congregation is the obviously the icon of the church as a whole. Um, so that kind of really transformed my understanding of the uh, of the nature of like women's ordination. Well, yeah, we call that the argument of, like, sort of in persona Christi. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, sort of that, that understanding of, like, the priest at the altar is representing Christ in, in the uh, liturgy. And I, I do want to point out, though, just so people who are listening understand, this none of this has anything to do with sort of power or authority um, in general. Uh, so, for instance, I would be fine with, at least me personally, I would be fine with voting for a female president. Uh, my my home church that is very, uh, very much against women's ordination uh, has a female who's in charge of the vestry right now. And the vestry, uh, for those who don't know, is a very powerful sort of, it's like the legislative body of the church. And we regularly have vestry members uh, who are female. This isn't a question of um, of sort of like can women make decisions in the church and be in leadership roles? That's yeah. not the question. I mean, for instance, uh, the parish committee uh, is headed by a female as well. I mean, just, and this is my very sort of complementary in church. You know? Yeah. No, I, I, uh, so I totally agree with you. Yeah. yeah. I actually don't have a problem with women uh, preaching to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I go back and forth on that one, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I haven't, I have no problem with them prophesying. I think there's a bit of a distinction between the two. Oh, okay. That, that would be an interesting conversation um, to have. Cause I actually, I view prophecy as preaching, but I, I would say that we see it in scripture that women can prophesy and that they just real short that in my re, my thinking on that then is that prophesying is something that ha, um, doesn't necessarily happen just within the church. It's something that happens, you know, proclaiming the gospel. That's oh, okay. Thing. But yeah. So yeah, I, I think that I think what happens today is that we're in a, such a world that is focused upon power. And because there is a person called the priest, you know, uh, that means, therefore, that they sort of have this power that, you know, women can't have access to sort of thing. And I think that's just a completely wrong way to look at it. Yeah, so I, I didn't want to spend too much time on women's ordination. It's always it's always a difficult concept or thing yeah. to talk about. Yeah. Um, 
I I, I, I think it's. I was Go just ahead. gonna say I, I agree with you, and I think I think one of the things that um, and I think Pope Benedict um, pointed this out, and I, I I forget which which publication of his that he did, but he said he was talking about the issue of women, women's ordination. And he said a lot of times the arguments for women's ordination smack of clericalism, because the idea mm-hmm. is is that the only roles in the church that really matter are clerical roles and that's not the way if you look at the early church i mean for example if you look at you know especially even today the roman catholic church and the eastern orthodox church and to a certain extent you know anglicans who's the most important person in the church ever it's the virgin mary she's not ordained she's like she you know she's the highest of the saints and the you know in the term of the orthodox liturgy more honorable than the cherubim and more glorious beyond compare than the seraphim right um yes yeah. and so i think that i think that not all not, not not always but a lot of times when i hear people who are pro women's ordination talking what i hear under underlying that is the only thing that matters in the church really is is the clerk is the clergy and that, that's just not true i mean the function of the clergy is to equip the saints for the work of ministry so the clergy are servants really household servants of the body of christ as a whole and they're meant to get us to a place where we go out and do god's work in the world um so they're honestly like in terms of the kingdom really they're not that important and and to add to that i think if you want to talk about the the authority and power of women the most i i I think one of the most powerful jobs in the entire world is being a mother oh yeah because you are literally training the next and what what really upsets me in these conversations is that a lot of feminists i know uh even christians who are you know you know pro women's ordination uh sort of laugh at that or scoff at that and it's sort of like like i'm trying to throw bones at them or something and I, i no i'm sorry like being a mother is incredibly important. Yeah. And we don't have enough good mothers or fathers out there, uh, which is why we're having many problems in our society today. And I, I think that that is an important full-time job. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I was actually, I was raised by a single mother. Um, and so I think I'm in, a, I'm in a position to really appreciate what you're saying is that I think motherhood is extremely important and I didn't have, I mean, I, I had a relationship with my father, but it wasn't something that I would consider a healthy father-son relationship. And he wasn't, he wasn't the one raising me. It was my mother. Um, and so if anything, I have a reason to, to, to be kind of, I don't have a reason to be anti-woman. So I, I get really kind of upset when people imply or explicitly state sometimes that, I'm against women's ordination because I'm a sexist or something like that. Because I'm like, yeah. uh, I, I'm like, I am not like I was raised by by women. Like the reason I'm a Christian is because of the women in my life. Like me, I've had a really fraught relationship with particularly my father um, in, in my life, and so I I don't have a reason to be anti woman. I'm really pro woman. But like you said, one of the things that that I mean, God designed women to be the mothers, and I think that's there's unique gifting there that men don't have and there and vice versa. I don't think that's, I mean, that's why I'm a complementarian. It has nothing to do with thinking one sex is better and the other is worse. It's just that God, God created the, the the different sexes with different giftings. Um, Mm -hmm. so that 
humanity could, you know, it's a, it, they're both gifts to humanity, and they're gifts to mm-hmm. produce to propagate humanity to um, ultimately bring us to himself and teach us something about himself. So, anyway, that's my that's yeah. my little soapbox. But no, I agree. I mean, um, I totally agree. So, as a priest, and then as a bishop, coming from your more sort of Caroline Divine. Uh, are you are you cool with that that phrase? I, I forget if you're cool with that phrase. Oh yeah, yeah, that's fine. I'm, I I okay. I appreciate the Caroline divines a lot. Um, old high churchman, okay. whatever. So, <laughs> yeah, old high churchman sort of position. What what is your distinction between bishop and priest? Because it's a bit more fuzzy, I would say. Yeah. So I, I um. I don't know if you talked about this on your on your like last one on on holy orders mm-hmm. about the the. Essay, bene essay, plenty essay distinction. Did you did you touch on that uh, at all, or? I might. I will. I stopped. Oh, okay, it. okay. <laughs> um, so I definitely, I I tend towards the the bene essay position, obviously, because mm-hmm. I think that's you can't. I mean, you can't you can't say it's of the essay of the church and think that you know non 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 episcopal churches are true churches, but. Um, so I think I think it's of the of the bene essay the well-being of the church not of the being of the church and I I tend towards Lightfoot's view on how the episcopacy came about or the episcopate came about and and the view is basically that um it's it basically arose as a presidency of the presbyterate um mm-hmm. so I don't think I tend towards the view that bishops are not of a different order necessarily than presbyters but that they're they're given the function of overseeing the presbyterate as a whole but they're still they're still presbyters um okay and so but at the same time i i agree that obviously the anglican tradition has always reserved ordination to the Mm. bishops um i don't have a problem with that um i think the church has a lot of leeway in determining how it's it has a lot of authority in determining how its life is conducted and so um yeah i don't have a problem with the with the bishops being the only ordainers and things like that but that's that's the view i tend towards okay it it is interesting that we see that back and forth in uh post-reformation anglicanism because you'll you'll have people like hooker or is it jewel jewel or hooker i can't remember which one uh maybe both actually um talking about uh, how it's sort of been the essay rather than essay, but every single time sort of Anglicanism comes in a hardship of, like, we need bishops to ordain. So, for instance, when uh, Queen Elizabeth takes the throne, um, they're they're scouring the entire country looking for four bishops who will uh, consecrate uh, uh, the priest, uh, Matthew Parker. Oh, yeah. Um, even though it's a been the essay thing. And then with the United States, when after the Revolutionary War, the Episcopal Church in the United States was looking, uh, you know, they didn't have any bishops. All the bishops, anyone who wanted to be ordained as a priest had to go to uh, sail to England. Yeah. So they, there was a huge debate on, well, should we just have the bishop or the priests sort of ordain more priests, or should we do it with the, uh, should we try to get a bishop of our own? And so they ended up getting a bishop of their own through Scotland at first, and then through uh, England. 
it's, but like, despite it being sort of, you know, a lot of people arguing it being a Bene Essay thing, it was always like, well, no, no, we need a bishop, sort of thing. So that's always been an interesting sort of back and forth. Yeah. Um, within Anglicanism post Reformation. Yeah, that is interesting. And I, I wonder if that's, I wonder if that's just a, an expression of of the Anglican temperament with regards to, you know, basically being conservative even in things where they they don't necessarily like basically so in that instance they're they're following catholic precedent right in the sense of like mm-hmm. the whole church has has done that for you know mm-hmm. at that point for almost 1500 years um pretty consistently and even if they if they intellectually and theologically believe it's only a bene essay view they default to catholic faith and practice which i actually think is good um because yes. it's colleg- one it's, it's an expression of collegiality um it's saying we're not gonna we're not gonna break from um you know we're only gonna break from the the roman catholic church in the areas where we believe that to not break is to is to violate scripture explicitly um and so in something like that that's not a you know you can't i i think i know presbyterians would very much argue against me and probably some others, but I don't think you can lift a whole church polity out of the New Testament. I think you have to mm. construct it to a certain extent. Um, and so I think there's a lot of freedom there, but I think once the church has decided something that people should follow what the church says. No, I agree. I actually would even say that Anglicanism never broke away from Rome. Um, oh, interesting. people sort of go, what? Well, it, the, look at it this way. Um, Henry VIII did not excommunicate Rome. Henry VIII simply, you know, and, you know, Parliament simply said, no, the king is in charge of the church in England. And that has been a position for hundreds of years in England. Um, starting with sort of, you know, King Oswy in the um, Council of Whitby. Oh, okay. And, and then definitely since William the Conqueror, you've got this understanding of the king is in charge of the church in England, and then you get all the way to um, St. Thomas Becket, and he gets killed um, sort of accidentally in the sense of, like, you know, the knights yeah. took... Well, well no one rid me of this troublesome priest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so they're like, okay, we'll do it. And then since then, you know, from from that point on, um, the, the king was just basically, oh, I'm in deep trouble. Let me just submit to Rome kind of thing. And so they're just reasserting, reasserting what had been the majority position um, in the history of Anglicanism. Hmm. That's not to say that they were not like we didn't say and therefore Rome is excommunicated or anything like that then Rome excommunicated us so Rome is actually the schismatic group i always remind my brother about that he's a Roman oh Catholic. that's an, yeah <laughs> that, that, there that, there's something that's an interesting point because i know that um i mean i don't think elizabeth uh was excommunicated until the 1580s um yeah, which is well into under, her reign after the elizabethan yeah. settlement was done and everything so that's kind of a yeah, it's, I think, a lot messier than we tend to think of it in retrospect. Well, even with, like, Henry VIII and, and Edward VI, I mean, Edward VI is not, I mean, he's, well, his, his, the church under him was very reformed, very, very yeah. reformed, you know? Definitely as, as compared to Henry VIII. Um, but with both of them, they were not excommunicated. Um, in fact, my understanding is that Juli, Pope Julius III received a copy of the 1552 prayer book. The 1552 prayer book. Oh, wow. And 
read through it and thought, yeah, this is okay. This isn't bad. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> I would say it's bad, but <laughs> no, no. Um, actually, I, I actually very much appreciate 1552. The only thing I really don't like is the black rubric. Oh, That's, yeah. But that isn't supposed to be in there anyway. Yeah. So, you know. I, I, the, the 1662 um, version of the black rubric, I think, is a lot more... A lot more tame. It's a lot Yeah, better. yeah, because of the, yes, switch, yeah. the change in the verbiage. I'm part of a tradition now where we've had one schism, I argue. The schism has been the ACNA from the Episcopal Church. That's been our first schism. Mm. Now, if now if you want to count, you know, East and West, I mean, we didn't excommunicate the East, so, <laughs> um, you know, it was Rome. We weren't necessarily saying that's good. Yeah, you know? and as far as I understand it, that was a... That was a uh, a personal excommunication between the the Pope at the time and the Patriarch of Constantinople, not like a mutual excommunication of the churches from each other. Which I know that can kind of get I, muddy, I but I've heard that before. That that was actually it was just they were just personal excommunications. They weren't meant to be like well, a clean break between yeah. the two communions, but. I know the legates, or I, I don't want to say no. I, I'm, my, my understanding is that the legates who did go to the East for whatever the talks were or whatever, initially when they did the excommunication, my understanding is that it was for the entire East, basically, like all the patriarchs. Oh, wow. <laughs> like they were just kind of doing everything, but like they were sort of flying off the handle. That's my understanding. And then I think it became more tame when it sort of became an official pronouncement from the papacy. Oh, but I'm not positive on that. I'll have to look into that. Um, yeah, yeah. So when we so when we talk about the Eucharist, so as as someone who holds to a very strong understanding of apostolic succession and, and ontological change and everything like that, um, with holy orders, for me, the Eucharist can only be valid and a true Eucharist through, um, well, can normatively be valid through holy orders. Hmm. What is your view on that? Like how how are, how is the interchange between Holy orders and the Eucharist uh, work for you, in, in a in in your view. Oh, I I, I agree with that. I, I think I would just the way I would come at it would be a little bit different. So I would say the the Eucharist can only be valid um, in a in a validly ordained presbyter or bishop when when they're officiating because the Eucharist is actually the offering of the whole church, and the church has set aside presbyters and bishops for this function so if anybody else undertakes it it's not legitimate because it's not the church hasn't designated those people to offer the sacrifice on their behalf so that's how i would i think i would approach it hmm. so you uh, to reiterate so you would not say that someone who is sort of you know at a home a house church or whatever who's a lay person and is like well we're having a bible study let's do communion that wouldn't be valid no yeah i would not say that was valid Okay, so do you see the sort of sacramental grace being imparted because of of the grace of holy orders? Then, like, like, so, like, the way I see it is with a lot of people, it's the words of institution that sort of impart the grace. My understanding. Mm. So, at least with like sort of more reformed people um, and maybe Lutherans, although I'm not too sure about their theology, they don't have a robust holy orders understanding. It would be the words of institution. So technically, a lay person could just do it, but the functionality of it is that it should be a priest or a pastor or whatever. So you would you would defer from that on, uh, from them on that. Yeah, I would say I don't tend to. Uh, 
I, I shy away from locating the the essence of the Eucharist from a particular moment in the Eucharistic prayer. Like I don't, okay. I don't, I don't kind of pinpoint it at the epiclesis. I don't pinpoint it at the words of institution. For me, what what constitutes the Eucharist is the Church's offer of praise and thanksgiving for the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that traditionally, obviously, Catholic practice that takes a certain shape, and I I, I think that shape is really important. But to me, the what would constitute the essence of the Eucharist is that it is validly offered in the church by those that the church has set aside to do that on behalf of the whole church. So that's why I would think that, you know, it's not some guy doing it in his living room with his Bible study is not actually a valid Eucharist. Okay. So you would discourage people from doing that, or would you say this is a nice thing to do, but just understand that this isn't the same as what we're doing when we gather together for worship on Sunday? I would discourage people from doing that, um, because okay. they're, I think in a lot of cases they would think they were doing something that they weren't actually doing. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if it was, you know, if it was, I mean, I I think there's some leeway if it was, if you were in some isolated location um, and yeah. the only thing you had, the only fellowship of believers you had was, you know, this, this living room Bible study or whatever. Um, I still think in that case, like whoever the leader of the Bible study is should seek valid ordination from an ecclesiastical body because I think the church is more than just local, obviously. And um, mm-hmm. I think, but in that case, like I think you could do it in what we would consider kind of a private context, but I would still say that he'd have, there'd have to be some mechanism for the church recognizing this person as somebody who can offer the Eucharistic sacrifice on behalf of the whole church or on behalf of the, on behalf of the church. Hmm. Yeah. I, um, my brother, uh, was surprised when he found out about this and not in a happy way or anything, but I told him that, uh, as an Anglican, uh, once I become ordained, God willing, uh, one of the rules is that I am not allowed to celebrate communion by myself. I have to have at least one other person. Yeah. And he found that sort of like problematic. And I, I actually appreciate that because I understand, you know, cause communion is communion. Um, it's not just me doing it by myself sort of thing. Yeah. And so I, I, I find that the unity of having people there is essential to the whole idea of it. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, thank you, Timothy, very much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Oh yeah, thanks for thanks for having me again. It's always been a pleasure. Alright. Uh, hope everyone has a good day. Yeah, have a great one.